I am Nedzal Mohammed, and this is JobMakers. Last week, we met Abdul Sabur Sakizara, a former translator, instructor, and manager for the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, now living with his family in upstate New York. He spoke about life as a child of war and what it was like in the front lines alongside U.S. troops, including Fox News contributor Pete Hegseth. This week, Abdul reveals that he is actively trying to evacuate fellow Afghan interpreters and their families, including his own baby brother. He gives us his thoughts on the U.S. withdrawal, paints a picture of who those Afghan refugees are, and entreats Americans not to buy into the false rhetoric and to get to know these new Americans in this final of a two-part special of JobMakers. You mentioned, you know, being seen as a traitor and, and betraying your country. And come to the present day, you also feel a sense of betrayal, but not from those people in Afghanistan, but from America and coalition forces. Let's talk a little bit more now about the work that you're currently doing. So I imagine several years ago, you left Afghanistan and came to the U.S., right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's all it's a duality, right? Because I think you're right. You know, you have a um, you know, we, 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 when I was there, I not only interpreted like a gazillion times of this doctrine and preached this doctrine, lived this doctrine of shoulder to shoulder, uh, making promises to the Afghan security forces, to the host nation communities, to the villagers, to the teachers that we're going to be here, we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. If you promise not to support the bad guys, we're going to be here. I know for a fact that I've attended countless number of meetings where uh, coalition forces or U.S. forces had promised, made those promises that, you know, um, you trust us, we're going to help you, we're going to save you, we're going to protect you. And then, then watching in 2021 in the fashion in which United States left Afghanistan, and here I am sitting after 20 years. Um, I mean, I served that mission for seven years, but after 20 years of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, it almost feels like all of that was a bad dream um, and a novelistic, very novelistic that just does not have anything in reality. If I would have, if I would have. Re- read the story of Afghanistan from 2001 until 2021 in a novel, I would have probably said, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is not, this is not, uh, uh, this is not a nonfiction. This is a fiction. This is, this is a made up story. So I could, but seeing it unfold in front of my eyes, seeing all of this, seeing all that effort, all that, you know, money, um, you know, it's, 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 um, it's it's hard, man. It's it's hard to process it. I still can't. I still can't believe this is this has happened. So when you hear President Biden say something like, "Our involvement in Afghanistan was never about nation building," how do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I, listen. If 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 I can tell you of someone who served in Afghanistan, um, um, you know, again, I, I I I as I said it on my. Pete Hex at every, I'm not into criticizing politicians or, you know, they're politicians. Um, but I can tell you for a fact that 
United States was there to nation build. Um, um, it's 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 sad. What bothers me is that we have found a way to celebrate our defeat, to somehow paint a picture of 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 this was this tragic picture. Somehow, still celebrate that we did it good. It's okay. It was okay. I guess we're either numb or we don't understand what this all means. I mean, I, I remember reading a book and, and, and that book kind of talked about, you know, what winning looks like. And, and one of the things that this book talks about is that, look, you know, in military warfare, there's two, you know, and this is part of it is confusing for even the, you know, citizens of the United States and international community and, you know, audience, uh, concerned citizens. It's confusing. Did we actually win in Afghanistan or did we, did we lose? So there's these two, there's two, there's two different aspects to this, right? Because if you actually look at the number of people that got killed from their, you know, who, who lost the most? You know, U.S. lost about 2,000, 3,000 soldiers, somewhere around there, roughly. And then there were, in comparison, the insurgents, the Taliban may have lost hundreds of thousands of, of their fighters. So from that point on, U.S. could say, and I'm not even counting the, the civilians that lost their lives, it's teachers, uh, hospital workers, doctors, engineers, and all of it. So that's even a, another side story that we don't even want to, that's another wound that we don't want to open. But the point is that from a, from a personnel standpoint, United States and international community may have not lost enough, as many, as, as many lives as the Taliban or the insurgencies did at that time. So from that point, one can say, can make an argument saying, oh, U.S. actually won from that. Because when you're into a battle of warfare, they lost more fighters than we did. So we won. But the second most important thing about warfare in Afghanistan, and particularly in the case of Afghanistan, is who, whose flag is up at the end of the battle? Who's, which army has their flag up? And clearly we know that the United States and Afghanistan flag is not up right now. And, and you know, the insurgency's flag is up, and, you know, all of that. So it, it, th this debate as to whether or not we lost, we won in Afghanistan, what this, this all looks like, our mission was not to nation build. Well, you're hearing it from me. I've attended uh, hundreds of meetings where we talked about uh, building infrastructure, building a state, a nation built, uh, a state building. Um, you know, USAID implemented hundreds of projects on fighting corruption, um, you know, building infrastructure, the, you know, issues, uh, you know, addressing, you know, um, you know, the recruitment process of who, what, 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 how to hire women and minorities and all of this, make it a, if, if, if we, there, there are hundreds of projects on governance in Afghanistan, building a governance system. If those are all not nation building, I don't know what is. Uh, so the point is that, you know, uh, I don't buy that story because I know for a fact that we were there to nation built. Uh, we did go there to nation built. We 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 poured billions of dollars into that nation to nation built. That you know. I wanted to bring it into the present day. We know what's happening in Afghanistan. We've all seen the images and the footage from the airport. People uh, climbing onto planes, even as they're moving. Uh, some falling to their deaths. What is your role right now? What are you doing? When we saw that uh, Kabul was, uh, it was, it was collapsing, I immediately got on the phone. I started calling all my military buddies, including Pete Hexett and all of anyone that I could possibly find. I said, I need help. I need to save my brother. I need to save my family. And so I ended up talking to some friends um, 
um, and 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 those friends found their friends, and eventually we found ways to uh, save my brother and get him through those gates uh, at airport, um, despite the chaos, despite the disorder uh, that was uh, that was there. Um, so we certainly made the impossible possible, but it was all done through the efforts of a lot of folks that may hear this voice um, and, and my heartfelt gratitude goes to all of them for doing this. And so as it, eventually when we found out a way to make, uh, to save lives, we basically took that methodology that we had and we started saving other interpreters, other, other, other families that we had a system and other, others made referrals to us. And we started doing the same thing with, with them. And, and because we had the right point of contact from that point on up until when the blast went off until they, the suicide bomber blow himself up and call in the, in the, in the, the gate at the Abbey gate in Kabul at the Kaya airport. And so that was when the sort of our mission of evacuation kind of went to this break, this halt. And so right now um, we're putting up a, uh, putting up a team that are going to do some of those evacuation because we know there are a lot of interpreters. We know there's a lot of folks that helped us mission in Afghanistan. I have visited, um, uh, Fort Pickett, Fort Lee, to get close to some of the Afghan refugees that are here in the stateside and to offer some support. So we're actively putting um, classes together for them to go deliver some of the services, whether that's culture, whether that is U.S. expectations and laws, and e even giving them the broader picture of what to expect when they get out of those military bases and they start living into American society, just like all of us. You know, so we're doing things in, in different levels to help um, you know, uh, to help as, as much as we can um, through the group that we have, uh, through the nonprofit efforts that we have sort of put together. So finding creative ways of getting evacuees out of, uh, getting people out of, out, out of Afghanistan and into some kind of safety. Um, so we are expecting refugees to be, and people on special immigrant visas to be resettled in the U.S. That has already started happening, coming from Afghanistan. Uh, help our audience understand who are these people? What are they like? What are their backgrounds? And I and I, I do remember reading there were some fifty thousand in Afghan interpreters over the course of the war. Yeah, so I mean, these are people like me. You know, now you got to know a little bit about my story. Um, these are engineers. These are doctors. These are um, people with. Um, unique skills that we don't get to see as often in the United States. They're bilinguals in most cases. Um, some of them more, know more than two or three languages. Um, um, uh, they're also folks that they have been deprived of education in their lives, like they're women, for example, girls. Um, um, so you get a whole mixture of different categories of population that come in to the United States. And then, you know, um, I mean, I, I, mean I, I come from a background of serving immigrants, uh, serving refugees in the United States, because professionally, that's what I did for about six years of my life here. So, uh, and then for those that are not as equipped to be ready to join or to, to, to contribute immediately to American, American economy, then what you do is then you connect them to the right resources um, um, to make sure that they're getting equipped or, or you can establish them on the path to self-sufficiency, to what would that look like. Um, but eventually they will all be just like all of us um, and their children will be just like our, our children here and or the children of American born citizens. I'm sorry, I, I thought people moved to the U.S. 
in desperate circumstances just to live off welfare. Are you saying that that's not how it is? Quite honestly, I, I think the, quite the contrary. I mean, I, I mean, there's a benefit welfare program that offers benefit, and these people are eligible by law. They're eligible to benefit from those programs. Um, but, you know, like I said, these guys are not free riders. They, 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 you know, they, they, they are engineers and they have skills to offer. I mean, I've helped, I've helped uh, with my program. I, I used to, uh, I, I specifically initiated a work to do, um, you know, how to transfer their, their certificates. So we had nurses, for example, and there were nurses in their home country, but, you know, they, they did not meet the standards of New York nursing standards or whatever that was. So they had to go to take some tests um, to pass certain testing exams to be certified again as a registered nurse. But for that, it takes time. And for that, until that takes place, they have to learn a little bit of language. They have to learn, they have to be ready to understand the, you know, medical terminologies or medical language. And they have to also work as maybe janitors or perhaps a cleaner somewhere um, uh, to make a living. Um, and some of those folks that are, you know, have a, a large family or so may also benefit from welfare, from other things. But that will be temporarily because once they get back there, um, back there, um, um, you know, uh, the, the job that they had studied for, the, the, the goals that they have for their life, it will just be like a, the rest of Americans. Uh, but, but I have to say, and I think this, this question alludes to this larger, larger picture because we don't get to talk about it as much, is the, the melting pot, the American melting pot, the crucible of, of everyone coming in and immediately overnight changing and, 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 and losing their identities, losing their, their values and the things that they have and automatically accepting uh, what an American values are like you know, keep in mind that they were, I mean, look at me. I grew up in a war zone. I, I grew up under a, a very highly conservative society. And for us to come in and be exposed to a whole set of new values and information, it takes time for folks to to go through this melting process, to go through it. And so, um, you know, you, you and I think we're not realistic enough. And uh, for those that question it, had they lived on the shoes of those families that are going through this transition every single day, uh, they would, I would almost guarantee you that they would have a quite a different experience of what that would be like. That's a really important point to make. Um, that adjustment does take time. And so many of them didn't have the luxury of, you know, MTV and these other things, uh, movies and Hollywood to, to acclimatize them beforehand, growing up in such an insular and very religious society. But the one thing that these people want is freedom. They want opportunity. You know, when I first came into the United States, um, the sky was the limit. Opportunities left and right. And for someone like me and full of energy, trying to do as much as you can to scale up in the socioeconomic ladder or, or perhaps be engaged like the same full of energy of the same thing of what I did in Afghanistan, you know, uh, the sky was the limit. I wanted to seek every opportunity I possibly could. Um, not um, from a familial, uh, for my family, or for professionally or academically, and you know, I managed to go through three different degrees in four and a half years. I did my associates, I did my bachelor's, I did my master's. 
um, all all in four and a half years of my time, uh, five years of my time in the United States. So, and part of that was that I saw opportunities out there, and I wanted to utilize them. And because I know, I know for a fact that a lot of these families that come into United States as the community members, if we support them to, and help them thrive, the community as a general thrives. The community as general up, up, you know, uplifts themselves and, and they have better community members to contribute back to the community. But I can also guarantee you, on the contrary, that if these, some of these families struggle and they cannot you know, adjust their life because we know how, how hard adjustment is. And if they struggle, and I could almost guarantee you that then the entire community will struggle. And it's, it's important for America to remember not to re-traumatize these families who have been through already so much. This is a moment where we can really show our how compassionate we can be, how welcoming we can be, how, um, how our value system is, which is that we welcome the stranger uh, who wants to work hard, who's fleeing something terrible. And we need to also remind people that people who are forced to flee generally don't want to flee. They would rather stay in their home country and, and, and build it up, right? And for their children and the school that their children go to, um, you know, it, it, it just blows my mind. So I think, again, it comes back to the part of, you know, that one word in my mind, engage. Engage and you will learn because that's where it all starts. But if you keep isolating yourselves and keep seeing your neighbors as this other, not as we, then that is the, the source of all evils in my, in my mind. That creates a gap between you and the neighbor. But when you think about we, then you're putting yourself in the same circle. You're putting yourself in the same umbrella of, oh, we're part of this community and we got to help each other out. I dare anyone listening to this podcast before you make an opinion public uh, about Afghan refugees in your community, go say hi to one. Find out who they are. Absolutely. for yourselves and you will be incredibly enlightened and you maybe be able to then share a different opinion on refugees being resettled in the US. Abdul Sabur Sakizada, thank you so much for joining us and giving us all of, of your experiences and your perspectives and really on the work that you're doing right now to get uh, people out of Afghanistan to safety, wherever that may uh, end up being, whether it's the US or other places, uh, we really, really wish, wish you the best of luck. Well, I appreciate you having me on the program. Thank you so much. And, and thanks for what you do, because uh, it's important for people to know the facts, the realities, and also the inside stories of some of these families. Jobmakers is a weekly podcast about the contributions of immigrants and refugees produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center of Malden, Massachusetts, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Thank you for joining us for the final of this two-part special of Jobmakers. We return to regular Jobmakers next week with Spanish-born life science entrepreneur Bernard Oyer, founder of Vedanta Biosciences, who is revolutionizing the world of the microbiome. I am Denzel Mohammed. Join us next Thursday at noon for another Jobmakers.